This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, now we head into the long-term care portion of the show. And yesterday, Queen's Park turned its attention to a long-standing issue in long-term care, the sweltering conditions in some nursing homes, which are not required to have air conditioning. Here's the Premier's reaction. I'd like to get these owners that don't put air conditioning, I'd like to stick them in the room for 24 hours of 30 degrees heat, see how they like it, or put their parents in there. You know, this is all about the dollars. Well, it is one of the rare cases where the opposition said it would support the government if the PCs moved to change legislation and make it mandatory to have air conditioning. But NDP leader Andrea Horvath also says this should not have come as a surprise to Doug Ford. Ms. Horvath joins me now. Hi, and thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure as always, Libby. Nice to be here talking to you. Okay, well, uh, thanks for coming on. So is is this going to happen? Do you expect legislation to make it mandatory? Uh, well, I certainly hope that the government will table legislation. Certainly, if they don't, we'll be prepared to do that and see if they'll support our legislation. Um, it's troubling. I mean, there's a bill coming into the legislature today, um, an omnibus bill that affects apparently all kinds of different uh, um, ministries, they could have tacked this change onto that bill, but I don't think that they have. I won't know till one o'clock. We'll see. But uh, it's troubling, though, that Mr. Ford claims that he didn't know anything about the problems with heat, um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, seniors sweat sweltering, sweltering in these long-term care homes. I mean, we've raised this, um, I don't know how many times over the years. I, I can remember raising it back in 2006. Uh, after visiting a home in my own riding, the Liberals didn't do anything about it, and we uh, we raised it with this Ford government two years ago. Uh, you know when they were you know first uh, getting up and running as the new government, and they didn't do anything about it. So for Mr. Ford to claim that he had no idea that this was the conditions uh, that were occurring in, in many of the homes in Ontario, it just it, it's not it doesn't make sense to me. It, it's just not credible. Well, I, I mean, I. To me, when I hear him, I, I mean, I genuinely believe that that he is really annoyed. And, uh, you know, because just because you brought it up doesn't mean that he was paying attention back then or focused well, on it. But this, is, but this is what governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to fix the problems. You know, and Mr. Ford likes to do that. He likes to be outrage, outraged and he likes to say he doesn't agree with this and he doesn't agree with that. But what he what he doesn't do is is actually fix the problem. No. You know, so, so I'm glad that he actually recognized yesterday that uh, it's a money issue uh, because we've said for a long time we have to get the profits out of long-term care and make it about providing quality care for people, uh, not about uh, turning profits for shareholders. And so, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're, he's finally starting to uh, see the light when it comes to, you know, what we should be doing uh, with long-term care dollars, and that is not putting profits into people's pockets, but taking care of our loved ones uh, to the best ability that we can. The media has had a hard time unearthing the actual number of nursing homes without air conditioning. Uh, do you have any insight on that? Uh, I don't off the top of my head, uh, but, I, but I know it's a, it's a huge issue, and certainly the older homes are, are worse than the, new, the newer ones. 
but there aren't very many newer ones uh, because not many have been built uh, by the Liberals over 15 years. They, they didn't build very many homes at all. And, of course, we haven't seen very many new beds from, uh, uh, from this government yet either. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing, and we've talked about this, I think, in the past, is that we do have... Um, we do have an imperative to start fixing our seniors' care system. I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, we have uh, demographic pressures. You know what I'm saying? Like the baby boom population is, is hitting that, uh, uh, the first wave is hitting, hitting that requirement now for more supports and for better home care and, you know, more supports to stay in their homes. And, um, and we're going to need more long-term care. So we have to really get our heads around how we're going to uh, to deal with all of this in a way that provides the dignity and quality of life and options and supports for caregivers. I mean, there's there's a lot of work that we need to do. Uh, it's outrageous that it hasn't been done as yet, uh, but um, but I, I'm really hopeful that we can use this horrifying tragedy of of COVID-19 and what it's done to our our seniors in long-term care. Over 1,820. Uh, people's lives lost. Let's let's use that as a as the inspiration to to fix home care and long term care and seniors support systems. Um, you know, here's, for every for the future and for every generation to come. Here's something that has me a little flummoxed. I mean, generally, I know it depends what kind of air conditioning you're putting in, and it's quite a project, and you need venting and opening walls, whatever. But uh, after being called out like that, the Woodbridge Vista Care community, which was one of the five really bad situations in long-term care that were taken over by the province, where 24 residents died, so their facility does not have air conditioned, and they just released a statement, the company released a statement saying, we're going to have 18 separate air conditioning units installed by the end of the day. So um, my my question is, you know, sometimes this being called out seems to work pretty well. Yeah, I mean, but the problem is there's no standard. So so this uh, VistaCare is going to be doing uh, that, that, and I congratulate them for taking action. Um, but, you know, should it be left to, you know, the decision of, of an administrator or of a board of directors as to whether or not uh, to to ensure that the seniors are able to have a, an, a you know, a, a physical environment that's that's not sweltering. I don't think it should be up to the choice of, of the administrator or the board of directors. I think it should be a requirement. Uh, and that's why we've asked the government to put uh, legislation in place uh, in that regard. Well, this seems to have happened uh, quite a few times over the pandemic. And, it, and it, I really find it quite interesting. And it started with, you know, the $30 Lysol at Pusateri. So the long-term care homes were called out. Doug Ford has actually said that he will personally call every home without air conditioning and try to get them to do it on the auto insurance file. This was another thing I found quite astonishing. Uh, we had Rod Phillips, the finance minister, called out Desjardins saying, I know that they are a bad actor in terms of not giving uh, not giving rebates to their customers. And lo and behold, a few days later, they suddenly found $1.25 billion. So, so what do you think about this kind of uh, I guess, naming and shaming, which seems to be very effective. Well, you know, so that's fine. So the name and shame Desjardins and name and shame Pusateris, but it doesn't deal with all of the other gouging that's going out there and uh, going on out there and all of the other insurance companies that are hoarding, uh, you know, hoarding some of the uh, the gains that they've received from from the uh 
you know, from the shutdown. I mean, I'm sorry, that's not governance. That is not governance. That's that's a one-off. And if the premier thinks that that's the way to govern a province by one-offing and naming and shaming, then we're still going to have the same problems that we have in long-term care and the same gouging that we have in the insurance industry for all of those other folks that don't get named and shamed. So, you know, again, I I don't think that that's what uh, people expect their governments to do. Certainly, uh, you know, raising the issue with the, uh, you know, particular bad actors is, you know, I'm not saying that that's something that you shouldn't do, but you also are the premier of the province. You're the government. Uh, People should be expected to get a fair shake no matter what. Uh, and the only way you do that is with with good public policy. But uh, I, I guess the premier doesn't believe in government, doesn't believe in in good public policy, and would rather just name and shame uh, organizations. Uh, you know, I'd, again, I, I just uh, I just don't see how naming and shaming is 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 what a government is is uh, is elected to do. I think they're elected to ensure that everybody uh, is able to uh, you know have insurance. In, in, uh, Companies that treat them fairly, and everybody is uh, uh, able to have uh, some kind of recourse when there's gouging. I, I went to the dentist last week, thank goodness, <laughs> and uh, and I mean they were telling me that the gowns that they're they're they have it to use. Uh, every um, hygienist has to ha- have a new gown for every patient, and um, that the gowns used to cost uh, ten bucks or yeah ten ten dollars for a pack of. Ten gowns or something like that, and and now their their gowns are ten dollars a piece, and so she has seven seven uh, patients in a day. That's seventy bucks, where it would have been you know less than ten bucks. Uh, so there's gouging still going on, and the premier calling out one one you know instance of gouging has not stopped the gouging from happening. And even though they talk about gouging in their emergency orders, it's still happening. Yeah, but uh, I guess the question with the gowns is where do they actually come from? Do they come from this jurisdiction? And uh, I'm sure that in a lot of cases, that stuff probably doesn't. So, um, yeah, I, I certainly hear what you say. I, just to get into the, the longer-term question, and we will have to take this up uh, at another point, too, but, but there are people in the industry who say, you know, uh, the, this government came in promising, what, 15,000, 30,000 long-term care beds, you were just saying more, more homes have to be built. But there are a lot of people who are saying, you know what, that's the wrong approach by, by putting your dollars in the, in the bricks and mortar, that really there has to be a whole new model. Well, I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that at all. Uh, we, I don't believe that these big institutional buildings that pack seniors in and, um, you know, and, and don't provide it a, a real decent quality of life. And uh, I, I, I don't think that that's the way that we necessarily have to go. So I'm all for reimagining, you know, what we can do to support seniors uh, as they need more support while they age. And so that's why I did talk about a little bit um, in our conversation about, uh, about home care, for example. How do, we, how do we really provide the supports that help seniors stay at home uh, longer? How do we make sure that where there are family caregivers that are helping with that, uh, uh, with that support of their loved one, what, where we're ensuring that they have uh, support and respite that they need uh, to be able to continue to, to provide that support. I mean, there's, I think this is a, really an opportunity to rethink um, how, we, you know, how we respect our seniors better, frankly, how we respect them better uh, and, and care for them better and, and give them choices and options uh, to help maintain their, uh, you know, their, their dignity and their quality of life and, and, uh, and their ability to, um, you know, to have, you know, as I said, choices that, that will 
help them to continue to age uh, in the way that that they want to. Do you know what I'm saying? So, Absolute, yeah. abs- absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, everyone would agree with that. And, and before I let you go, Andrea, one more thing that has come up recently. And uh, it, it is about, you know, now that we are getting over this, it's the restrictive nature of the visiting rules that is keeping people from their loved ones, that is making a much more stringent requirement for a family member than for the caregivers, that they have to have these tests within two weeks and and there are delays and sometimes the test expires before you can get an appointment and it doesn't recognize family caregivers and it doesn't ask the people on the other end of it what they want. Yeah. No, it's it's really it's heartbreaking, and we've heard a lot of just terrible stories of uh, of people. I mean, exactly those circumstances that you've described, and and it, and really, I mean, it really does come down to money again. I mean, it, it, we don't want to have the spread happening. Of course, we don't want to make people more vulnerable or or uh, you know create a situation where where a, where a long term care facility ends up going into an outbreak situation, but that means that there are things that we need to do. Uh, you know, uh, there are things that infection control absolutely is something that they need to get a better handle on, but, uh, for example, you know, if, if you have more, one of the things that I'm hearing is bookings are made and then, you know, and then there's not enough staff and then at the last minute the, uh, the, the booking has been cancelled or, you know, the, the loved one is told, sorry, you can't come today because we had someone call in sick. Or, so there's issues around staffing, uh, access to PPE, um, you know, uh, uh, sanitizing stations and all those things. I mean, look, we have been able to go into hospitals. Um, so, and, and, I, and I've been into a couple of hospitals to visit people, and it's, it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, there's a, there's a really uh, well-oiled machine there in, in, at the hospitals to make sure people are screened, to make sure that they're wearing PPE, that they're wearing masks, that they're sanitizing, um, and, and all of those pieces. And, uh, you know, what does, what does it cost to ensure that happens in long-term care? Uh, and I think whatever it costs, it needs to be done because the cost of, of the loneliness and the anguish and the pain that uh, families are feeling right now after months of not being able to, you know, to engage with their loved ones, uh, the mental health toll that that takes on both sides, right, both on the person living in long-term care and on the, the rest of the family, um, you know, it's just, it's a, a big, big price to pay. Uh, so we need to, we need to think about what are we doing to support the homes to be able to have the ability to, to open them up more to, uh, to family members. Okay. Andrea Horvath, leader of the official opposition in Ontario. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure as always, Libby. You take care. Okay. You okay. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a break. Before we take a break, though, I will take a call from Rick in Guelph. Hi, Rick. Hi, Libby. Um, this issue about uh, AC in the long-term care homes. Uh, I'm in the Waterloo-Wellington area, and as I was selecting homes for my wife to go into from this booklet they pro- that the Lynn provides, I noticed that some have air conditioning throughout the building, throughout the facility, and others only have air conditioning in the common area. So when the government looks at all of this, they should make sure that it's not just the common areas. The AC has to go through the whole facility. Good point, Rick. Um, Because, you know, it's one thing to be nice and comfortable while you have your dinner or something and then go back to a 30-degree room. 
Well, thank you for pointing that out, and uh, I appreciate your comment, and it's, it's a very good point and something, I guess, yet another thing people have to look at when they are looking at a loved one in these places. Rick, thanks very much for your call. Okay, thanks, Libby. Okay, bye-bye. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We continue our discussion about the conditions in long-term care and the issue of air conditioning with three women who are involved at the ground level. Let's bring in Donna Duncan, CEO of Ontario, the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Jane Meadis, a staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, uh, which represents nonprofit homes. Ladies, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay, let Thanks, us Libby. Okay, let us start with Jane and Jane, uh this is no surprise to you. You have had a lot of complaints about this very issue over the years. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's really something that we've been trying to um bring an attention to for the government that um not only are there homes that are not air conditioned um at the present time, but the design standards, even if you build a new home, does not require air conditioning in the residential portion. It only requires it in the um, common areas. So, you know, it, it has to have something called air tempering. But I can tell you, I've been in those rooms, uh, in those homes, and you cannot breathe. Um, I do not know how people are living in it. And I suspect that some of them aren't. I think that, you know, the fact that we don't have air conditioning, but we're, you know, getting weeks of 30-plus, uh, temperatures, it, you know, in this day and age, it, it's just criminal that we don't have this in long-term care homes. Uh, you have gone so far to say that you want the province to track heat-related deaths. I do. Um, they do that in Quebec. They do it um, across the board in Quebec. So, uh, you know, uh, last summer, I remember seeing, you know, how many deaths there were in Quebec during heat waves. We don't do that in Ontario. And I think that it should be done in both the general public so we know what's going on as well as in long-term care. Donna, what's your reaction to that? You know, Libby, I, I think it's, it's it's tragic what we're seeing here. It, it really has been a perfect storm, and, it's, and the fact that it's taken a pandemic to shine a light on the conditions and, and the state of our uh, our buildings in long-term care and where our most vulnerable people are, are residing, um, you know, summer you know, to, to Jane's point, uh, summer comes every every year in Ontario, and and uh, I know Lisa and I have have been uh, raising the alarm around uh, what was going to happen when we a heat wave hit us, especially given that the COVID requirements and how it gets managed only magnifies the issues because air condition air conditioner and fans can actually spread the disease. So um, I, I wanted I, to yeah, do better. I, I wanted to bring that bring that in uh, a bit later, but we may as well deal it with it now that you've uh, brought it up. So everybody's clamoring for air conditioning now, but but basically, a day ago there were a bunch of scientists who who says who say that we have overlooked the danger of airborne micro droplets, uh, and that includes ventilation, which would include air conditioning. Now, I know there are some other scientists who've kind of poo-pooed it, but but how do you even navigate this? And, and we've heard from some 
government officials who've talked about fans and said they, it's even a problem with fans. Lisa? So this is something that's new, obviously, and I think the scientific community is trying to determine what's safe and what's not safe. And around six weeks ago, I started writing the ministry and uh, public health saying we need to look into this because if we don't have an answer, we're going we should evacuate people out of homes because if they have COVID-19 and they're having difficulty breathing and they're in a sweltering home, I mean, no one should be in a sweltering home. That's that's what we started off by saying, and I agree absolutely with, with Jane and Donna. But then on top of it, if they are having difficulty breathing and they're ill, they need to get out of there. Because I don't think there's been really any decisive uh, evidence uh, to show 100% if you can or can't use fans and window units. And why is it in 2020? that we have buildings that are not air-conditioned with some of our most vulnerable um, populations living in them. It's, it's really ageism. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but uh, again, Jane, uh, mm-hmm. when you put COVID and, and the lack of knowledge mm-hmm. into this mix, how do you handle it? Well, I, I have sort of two comments. First of all, um, you know, there are many homes that do have air conditioning. And for the associations to say that, you know, well, it's up to the government, their, their um, homes could have put in air conditioning. Homes that were newly built could have put them in. Um, it wasn't a requirement by the government, but it would have made common sense. So, uh, you know, I don't buy the fact that, well, you know, the government didn't do it so well, you know, we didn't do it. Um, with respect to the air conditioning issue, um, yes. Uh, fans and uh, personal air conditioners certainly have an issue. Um, the government has set out some guidelines on how to deal with that, the public health has. Unfortunately, I think there's some differences between what public health, the Ministry of Long-Term Care, and the local health units are saying. Um, but, you know, if we had, you know, uh, uh, air conditioning throughout the building, um, that would make sense. I mean, we had furnaces in the winter. But I do agree with Lisa. Um, one of the things that I've been saying since the beginning was that they don't know um, whether it's airborne or not. It's been an ongoing issue. And I think that one of the tragedies here is that they didn't ev- evacuate people because if they had taken people out into hospitals, which have proper you know, negative pressure rooms and all of that, I think we would have seen a much lower um, outbreak because, you know, we were running furnaces at that time. So, you know, we have to look at the systems we are, make sure that, the, you know, the majority of people are, are safe, and if people aren't going to be safe in those homes or are going to be spreading disease, they should be moved out into places which can properly manage that. Donna, what's your reaction that these homes could have put in the air conditioning? Uh, you know, uh, Jane put it fairly dip- diplomatically. Yesterday, the Premier said, you know, I, w- I want to put them in a room because this is just a money issue for them. Yeah, I, you know, I would say it's 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 not. We're it as as easy as just saying that it, it's about money or or that you can just put in the air conditioners. Unfortunately, these the older homes in particular, um, they they would have to rewire the entire homes. So I think everybody was waiting for a, a redevelopment program to, to get off the ground over the last twenty years, and that never happened. Uh, I I think we have a collective responsibility to. Uh, be creative right now, and I certainly agree with Jane and, and Lisa uh, that uh, we need to look at some alternate space uh, where these homes can't be cooled, and uh, and we and we, we we have to find we've got to be creative when the when the 
pandemic started, we, you know, everything was focused on hospitals. And for hospitals, they were looking at alternate spaces. We need to be doing that right now uh, because it's, we haven't got time to rewire homes so that we can have a, an air conditioner in every room. Uh, we've, but, we've got to be creative. But on the other hand, we just heard from Woodbridge Vista Care Community today, which was one of the five taken over by the province. <clears throat> so they're called out and they said, we're, we're going to have a, 18 units in by the end of the day. Yeah, I, I unfortunately can't speak to uh, what, what their physical plant is like and, and, and what they're doing. But, uh, you know, these are the most vulnerable human beings that we have. These are, these are people, uh, and we've got to treat them with dignity. We all have to do so much better in, in making sure that they are in accommodations that are safe and respectful. Uh, their health and, health and safety has to be number one priority. Um, yeah, I mean, so, Lisa, Lisa, I can you go ahead. Yeah, I... I could add into that uh, as well. So a number of our members, many of them have redeveloped and many of them do have air conditioning. I don't know the exact numbers. Um, However, most homes are on a very shoestring budget and they don't have the room in their budget. I'm sure each and every one of them would want to be air conditioned and they just don't have the room in the budget. And now on top of it with outbreak, some of the homes are experiencing really severe financial issues because they're having to pay for agency staff and they're having to pay for, you know, PPEs. And the ministry has been great with flowing the money really quickly, but a lot of them still have well exceeded that budget. And they just don't have the money uh, to invest in the air conditioning that is needed. Uh, Jane, does this open up that whole question about whether we should have for-profit homes? Well, I mean, I think that it's it's not necessarily for-profit or not-for-profit, but certainly if people are taking profit over putting in proper services into the home, that's, you know, that's an issue. Um, I, you know, I think that there are facilities of both types. Um, I'm also concerned about the fact, you know, one of the issues that we certainly see is that you know, they're saying that a lot of these homes are older. Um, there's been a program trying to get these homes to redevelop. They're all supposed to be redeveloped by 2025. And we've seen little movement on that. Um, and so, you know, again, they don't like what the government is, you know, offering. Um, some homes have redeveloped, but, you know, we've seen very little movement in a lot of this. So, you know, it, it all has come together now. And we're in a situation where I have clients calling me, showing me their what the heat is like in their rooms. I've been in those rooms. Uh, They're supposed to have um, cooling areas. The cooling areas are not necessarily open to them. Um, I, you know, I talked to the homes and they said, well, we need that for the staff for donning and doffing outfits. And they're obviously hot as well. They're working in the situations I can't even imagine. Um, And it is a terrible, it is a tragedy. And again, it's a tragedy upon a tragedy. And I don't think it had to happen. Yeah, it is uh, obviously a, a, a very difficult situation. But um, again, that's one of the things that comes out of we've, we've seen, I don't know, at least three reports on the situation in long term care and how Canada performed so poorly compared to other Western countries. And everybody seems to be clamoring for national standards. Who wants to take that, Lisa? Well, I think that there certainly needs to be national standards uh, for long-term care. In Ontario, we have uh, a lot of regulations, um, I think over 600 regulations governing and regulating uh, long-term care. 
But the issue is that the system is really underfunded. So if you have overregulation and underfunding, the regulations are not effective. So government can keep giving us regulations, but if we don't have the staff to um, comply or to help us comply, then it's not going to happen. So I think that there's certainly a need for national standards. I think uh, outcome-based standards, accreditation-type standards um, would be really helpful. Um, Having government work with homes to do coaching for compliance so that uh, people don't feel that they have to hide from the inspectors and, and, you know, be fearful that um, they can help them to meet some of the regulations. Some of them are really obvious. Some of them aren't and that they need help. So I think there's a lot that could be done to look at the regulations. There's a lot of duplication with them also, uh, duplication with public health and with other organizations. So there's definitely um, opportunities to look at regulation and long-term care, but it needs to be done with other measures as well. Donna, uh, I, uh, let me just ask you, uh, how would you, what do you think of the idea of, of, you know, making it mandatory legislating air conditioning in homes? That's what uh, the opposition wants. Yeah, and I, I'm going to just uh, uh, comment on, on Lisa's comments around around standards and what what do we need to legislate and I think even to to Jane's point of what's what's common sense and uh, I think we've got to make sure that um, we're we're focused on uh, very quickly uh, addressing the air conditioning uh, issues uh, in long term care. I, I don't know that we need to legislate. I think we just need to make sure that it happens. Uh, and we need to make sure that that everybody's uh, working in partnership uh, to make to ensure the safety of our residents. You know, the uh, to, to to the point around national standards, we need to be focusing on quality and the experience of our of our residents, and we need to make sure that we're staffed and and accommodating people based on what their actual needs are. And I think that's one of the things that's really come out of this is there was no recognition of, uh, of how frail our residents are in long-term care, nor was there recognition of, of um, some of the, the, the broader issues that have, have emerged through, through COVID-19. So uh, we can't lose this opportunity to fix things, but we, we have to make sure we're focused on the right things. And we need to focus on fixing those things as quickly as possible. We don't have the luxury of time, and time's already been squandered. But we all have to do better, and we need to do better together. Jane, uh, you know, back to this issue of, you know, legislating it and legislating it, you know, yesterday. Uh, there's also, the Premier was saying, he, he's just going to call every long-term care operator that doesn't have air conditioner air conditioning and and ask them to put it in like what do you think of that well I think that's going to be a really uh, big job I'm not sure that he has the time to do that um, you know we'd all like to see that list uh, as well as the you know which homes have it and which don't um, because it's not obvious it's not new homes versus old homes necessarily um, you know and do we need to regulate things? I mean, I've heard, you know, many times that the issue around regulation, we have too much regulation. I sat through a lot of the legislative and regulatory um, creation prior to the Long-Term Care Homes Act in 2010, and I can tell you why things were put in, um, because the industry weren't doing things, um, just common sense things like, you know, if someone was, you know, uh, the victim of a crime, call the police. Well, now, no, they wouldn't do that. So now we had to put in a piece of legislation. So, you know, yes, it would be nice to be able to rely on common sense. It would be nice to be able to do that. But unfortunately, in long-term care, it often ends up being 
whatever the lowest common denominator is, is what they do. So if it's not written, they often don't do it. And, and you know, I know I'm sure that the associations will disagree with me, but, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time. And that has been, you know, historically been the problem. And, you know, but we do definitely need to have more money. The government has not seemed to understand how frail and, um, you know, what kind of expectations and requirements are needed in long-term care. We absolutely need more funding. Uh, we need to figure out what the acuity of the people is and how long it actually takes to take care of an individual in long-term care. I don't think we really know that. Um I think we have some ideas and, you know, people throw around numbers, but we really need a good understanding of that and get it funded properly. Let's I think take... we also need to look at municipal homes as an example, because a lot of municipalities um, have generously kicked in contributions to long-term care. Mm-hmm. And in those areas, um, they have been real leaders in innovation in homes, uh, having a butter- butterfly homes, for example, uh, in Peel region and other areas. So there's some great examples of homes going well above and beyond where they have the ability uh, with more revenue to do more things. Yeah. Uh, let's take a call from Debbie in Guelph. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Um, I have looked at both sides of this because I actually, many years ago, worked as a PSW in a regionally owned facility, a long-term care facility. Plus, my mother was actually in one. And one of the things that it hit me at the time was that the building I worked in was not air-conditioned. They had an, uh, a window one in the uh, dining room area. And the residents perhaps didn't complain about the heat, but they also, you know, honestly didn't realize sometimes at their age or with their mental capacity just how hot it was and how dehydrated they were becoming. We needed to go around, and I mean, I was one that instigated one night, let's hand out glasses of water, and every one of those residents guzzled down the water that I handed them. But not only that, it's the staff trying to work in the facility that has no air conditioning. It was so difficult trying to care for the residents when we were ourselves were sweltering, trying to lift them, you know, care for them. It was it was unbelievably hot. Yeah, thank you for that, Debbie. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, and this again is just one thing. It's complicated by COVID-19. Uh, but, you know, while I have you three here, I want to turn also to this latest issue of the restrictions on family members, loved ones visiting, and, and family caregivers. Uh, Lisa, is there an, you know, a, a way out of that? Well, I think something that might have made mo- most sense if it was a short-term issue um, is making less and less sense and is unacceptable as time goes on. So we've been trying to put an iron ring around homes so that we can keep COVID out. And when it comes in, often it's because a staff staff person or someone from the outside comes in. So as we open up homes and families come in, even if they wear PPE, there will definitely be an increased risk of COVID coming in. And then we see the situations where in some homes it takes off and it just runs through the home. But at the same time, we have people who are probably dying of loneliness. Um, they They can't see their family. They don't understand why they can't see their family. Family caregivers do a lot in homes to help their loved ones practically with feeding and other things. And I think there's really 
no good answer here. We need to get families back in in a safer way as we can do it. And um, But we, we have to also try and do it in a way that we make sure as much as possible that we don't create more um, outbreaks in homes. It's a really tough issue, Libby. Jane, I mean, it, it turns out that it is up to the homes how they handle the visiting. And we've been hearing all these stories, visits canceled, people end up having to take two tests before they can get in. They're taking more tests. You know, sometimes older spouses have to stand in line, take more tests than the caregivers. What, what do you see should be done about that? Well, I certainly think that this issue of testing, I mean, you know, frankly, I'd be more worried standing in the line um, to catch COVID um, than anything else. Um, you know, I think that we have to deal with that because multiple testing, um, especially if you're elderly, is going to be problematic. You know, they are quite invasive um, and they are being tested. And, you know, it, it only tells you what, what your test is at that very moment, not what happens the next day or the day after. I think proper PPE is the more, you know, uh, smarter way to go. Um, you know, but, you know, I know that Lisa and Donna and I have had many conversations about this over the last several months. Um, and it is a very difficult issue. And, again, I think sometimes it does come down to the government's going to have to uh, provide more money because this is definitely out of the ordinary. And people who are going in to visit are going to have to be properly, you know, PP, given PPE, et cetera, and they're going to have to have staff that are going to have to do that. So, uh, you know, it definitely comes down to the government has to um, provide more money. And if they don't, you know, people are wasting away. People are dying because they're not getting visits. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes you wonder, are any homes hiding anything? Because, frankly, everyone that I've talked to that has gotten in to see a loved one says their loved one is deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Lisa or Donna? So, uh, you know, I, I think that to, just to build on Lisa and Jane's comments, it, you know, there's such a, a tension here. We've got to find the balance. And I would, you know, really think that uh, it's about how we reintegrate caregivers as essential partners in care. It, it's not an if, it, it is a how. We know more about this virus this shape-shifting virus now than we did three months ago. Uh, and we know that, you know, testing and, and PPE uh, and more, uh, much more enhanced infection uh, and prevention controls, uh, they, they work. And so how do we bring in family members as partners uh, to support the, the loved ones so that we don't have the deterioration of, of our residents? It, 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 it's, it's a real challenge, but we, we have to find a way to do it. Um, it's, it's non-negotiable uh, because, uh, you know, as Lisa said, uh, keeping keeping uh, family members out for the longer term is just not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the residents and their, and their health and their mental health, but it's not sustainable for the homes either. Uh, the, you know, we, we really have to, to look at how collectively we partner together in supporting our residents and uh, family caregivers are, are important pieces of that team. Yeah, but is is it does it work if you just leave it up to the homes, Lisa? I don't think things are being left completely up to the homes. The government has um, put out requirements for visiting, saying there needs to be at least one visit, outdoor visit a week. But at the same time, homes have to work within the capacity and the staffing that they have. So uh, to to oversee these outdoor visits and virtual visits, they need to have 
they've had to staff up. And don't forget, we're in the middle of an HHR crisis in in uh, a health human resources crisis in long term care, which started before COVID and has been exacerbated. So there's a number of practical things that need to be put in place. Um, I don't think homes uh, are hiding things uh, or trying to keep families out for that reason. I think they just logistically have to get their, you know, their processes up. And But there's also some great best practices, and we've been working with our members um, and, and with Jane and, and Donna and a bunch of other organizations, such as the Family Caregiver Organization, to come up with best practices um, to get families back in. Our members are very interested in doing this. And we're actually sharing with our members an example of a curtain that's been used in Europe um, where people can hug through the curtain. I mean, it sounds pretty sad, but it's better than nothing because people crave human touch and they, they haven't been hugged by their family members. So we need to come up with these these ideas to keep people safe, but to keep them loved and comforted at the same time. Okay, and now we are totally out of time. Uh, thank you so much, Jane Metis, Lisa Levin, and Donna Duncan. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, oh, thanks Libby. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.